My experience with cancer was the greatest challenge I've ever faced in my life, but it was also one of the biggest learning experiences. And I continue to learn from it, especially when I speak to other survivors and caretakers. Sharing my story and learnings from others is one way that I continue to use my cancer experience as a way to grow as a person and to help others. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Dominic Cervoni. He is the Vice President of Legal and Senior Legal Counsel for HSBC. He is also author of the book, From Tragedy to Triumph, How My Wife's Courageous Battle with Rare Cancer Has Motivated Me to Live a Better Life Filled with Passion, Empathy, and Gratitude. Well, Dominic, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start. I want to. I want to know who Dominic is. You know, tell me, tell me your story, and tell me how your story led you to become passionate about well-being. So it really started a few years ago. Um, I'm I'm happily married. My wife was very sick at the time, suffering from a you know, rare cancer, and then even more rare autoimmune disease. And she was just not doing well. Um, And it's watching your significant other suffer Mm. the way my wife suffered, definitely left an imprint and, um, you know, caused me to profoundly reflect on life and health overall. Um, And going through the various, you know, procedures and treatments and hospital visits. Um, I distinctly recall waiting for one of her surgeries uh, in, in, in the hospital with my mother and just completely exhausted and confused and frustrated, but having this moment where, um, you know, I, I, I looked at my mother and I said, you know, eventually my Barbie, my wife's name is Barbie, will get better. Um, and her suffering will not be in vain. We need to remember how horrible this is and how miserable this feeling is and, and use it to, as fuel so that we make life lasting changes in our everyday life. And, and that's what we did. Um, it wasn't, <laughs> while she was sick, we had two, you know, two young kids, ages one and three at the time. Wow. Um, it was not easy. And, and 2016 was, it was a very difficult year. I, I felt I failed on numerous occasions as a, as a husband and a father. Um, but once, she, once she started getting better, finally, we found the treatment that worked. And I, I do want to say that, you know, the, we call them the miracle workers at Memorial Kettering, um, found the treatment that worked and her body, what they say normalized and she started to gain weight and taste came back and she was able to sleep and move around and do things that she couldn't do because of her illness. Um, and the life came back in her face. Um, again, sort of one of those light bulb moments where I said, all right, she's getting better. Thankfully it's working. And now, you know, I Don need to look inward and, and think about my own self care and figure out a way to, to, to be better myself and use the lessons we learned from my wife's suffering to improve our, our lives every day. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I'm glad that she is healthy and well, and, um, 
I echo that 2016 was a really difficult year because that was the year that I was actually also diagnosed with breast cancer. So um, I think we can all write that year off. (laughs) Um, I'm glad to see that you are doing well also. um, It really, look, it's a testament to, to, to my wife, to you, to, to all, all people that have suffered from um, disease, including cancer. It's, it's not, it's not easy. Um, I, I didn't physically go through it. And so I don't know, I can't relate in, in that regard, but, but again, watching my significant other and knowing so many others that have gone through it. Um, we, we use the term to describe my wife and it, I, I, it aptly applies to you, Jennifer, as a um, warrior. Mm-hmm. So kudos to you as well. Well, thank you. I know, I know when I was going through it and I wonder if, you know, you, you relate to this too, as a, as a caregiver and caretaker, you know, my, my husband, you know, after the fact, certainly we didn't talk about this during, but he, you know, he's like, I often felt helpless because all he could do is kind of help me and, you know, be on the sidelines and be there, but I was still the one that had to go through it. And I think there was a, a longing and kind of a desire that, you know, you wish you could take somebody's pain away, but you can't, right? In so many aspects of life. Absolutely. I, I felt totally helpless. And um, that was part of the frustration is that, you know, being a, a husband and mm. a caretaker and, and a dad, you know, I come from this sort of old school Italian family where you have like the patriarch and his job is to take care of the family. Your name doesn't give it away at all. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're much more Americanized now, but um, I still have some of that sentiment and, and and watching her suffer and and not being able to, you know, do anything about it. And and it was very difficult and frustrating. Then there was another moment where again, I had this moment, I was sitting in my garage in my car, there was nowhere else to go. Um, and thinking like, what can I control? I can't control the tumors. I can't control how it's affecting her body and whether treatments work or don't work. And if she's going to need surgery, I couldn't rid her of illness. But I could do things like take care of our finances, transfer medical records from hospital A to hospital B, invite her friends over on a Saturday night so they could you know, watch whatever TV show they were watching. And so focusing on those things... Yeah definitely helped. Again, not easy. Um, I had many moments of weakness and failure, um, but focusing on what you can control was definitely one of the, one of the most important things I learned uh, going through that with her. And um, we, we wrote a book about it uh, from tragedy to triumph. We, you know, one of the things we thought we could do again is, is share her story and maybe help somebody else that is similarly suffering that maybe feels helpless and doesn't know what to do and doesn't think it'll ever get better because while 2016 sucked in that regard, it did provide valuable lessons that we use day in and day out to really cherish our lives. And I thought that sharing that with people would be helpful. And if we could just make, you know, one, one person's life better or have an, a meaningful impact in just one person's life, then, then it was um, all worth it. I, I completely agree that 100 percent resonates with me and is very personal (laughs) so so let's let's talk about you and kind of you being by her side how did this really change your approach to personal and professional well-being like what did it look like pre-cancer so pc (laughs) and then and then you know you had that moment in the hospital that you said this isn't going to be 
for nothing. Um, so, so what did that change and what does that look like for you in your personal life and in your professional life now? Sure. So like, you know, PC, um, <laughs> it was, you know, kind of just down and every day it was the same. There was a lot of focus on work as an attorney at a, at a big firm and kind of feeling stuck and, um, not knowing what the future held and what am I doing and what's my purpose. And I can't believe I went to law school for this. Um, <laughs> that kind of thing and not taking care of myself at all, you know, in terms of exercise or reflection or introspection and doing a lot of, you know, drinking, um, especially on the weekends and basically leaving the office at a certain time on Friday and from Friday night, you know, until Sunday night, just sort of letting loose in, in that regard. Um, mm -hmm. And not being happy with the day to day. And that was not uh, fun. It wasn't healthy. It wasn't fun. It wasn't fulfilling. Um, and then, you know, we, we had a, we had a, our uh, first child and then I went in house at HSBC. I was seconded and that definitely helped because there was a whole new way of working in house life is, is a little bit different than life at a big firm. It still has its you know, pros and cons and its challenges, but, um, the dynamic is different and it just freed up a bit more headspace to, to think about life and what's important and, and what's not important. Um, but before I could get too comfortable, my wife got sick. Mm. And then again, it was really, what can I control? And one of the things I could control was exercising, getting my ass out of bed at a certain time every day and going to the gym. And just that process, that new habit gave me control over something in my life and made me feel accomplished. And so I, January, 2017, um, it was like a new year. It started out sort of a new year's resolution. Um, and I already, I had workout program lined up. I had, you know, the gym lined up. I knew exactly um, what I wanted to do and had to, had to make some changes like getting up 90 minutes earlier than I ordinarily would get up was a challenge. And how was I going to do that? And so I figured it out. I went to sleep in my gym clothes. I <laughs> everything I needed for the morning Keys, wallet, uh, headphones, water bottle, jacket, ready to go. All I had to do really was get out of bed, brush my teeth, and go. And so I started waking up at 4.30 in the morning to go exercise. And I did that, and it became a, a habit. The first couple of weeks are obviously difficult, um, but the, the natural high that mm -hmm. I obtained by exercising was something completely unexpected. And it was – honestly, it was addicting. And, and the days that I did not exercise, I was like a curmudgeon. I was miserable. Um, and I was like, wow, one day of not exercising really can do this. And so you asked, you know, what it looked like for me. It all started with exercise and establishing night, uh, healthier nighttime and, and morning routines that enabled me to really just have a different perspective on, on life. And um, my, my days became much more fulfilling Nothing had changed in terms of I was at the bank for a couple of years. My comp didn't change. My day-to-day -day work didn't change. We lived in the same house. We drove the same cars. None of that stuff, the material stuff changed at all. If anything, I was making less money uh, at the bank than I was in private practice. But it was that simple thing. I say simple now. Maybe for a lot of people, it's not so simple. But exercising every day changed my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just made me... Um, like I, it was, it was being happy throughout the day wasn't as difficult as it was 
PC again, if you will. <laughs> it was just very natural. And I became a, a more organized, productive lawyer. Uh, I was certainly happier. I was more engaged. Um, I, and, it, and, it re- and it translated to life at home. And so yeah. I started having more patient patience with my kids. And I was more present when I was at home and able to, you know, I'm going to spend this time walking the dog. And I'm going to spend this time uh, playing with my children. I'm going to spend this time, you know, having a conversation with my wife and just not as, as distracted as I had been in the past. And so, and, you know, that's where three to four years after that. And um, it, it, it can be a little bit more challenging now, right? I think like with most things, um, we get used to it. And so yeah. you have to make changes. And, and that's been challenging at times, to be honest, Jen, is, you know, in 2017, I was like the happiest year of my life. Sure. And sometimes, you know, doing those same things don't necessarily have the same impact today as they did a couple of years ago. And so it's the challenge, to be honest, finding additional things, tweaking workouts, tweaking routines to, to sort of stay up, stay sharp day to day and have that daily feeling of, of happiness and fulfillment and gratitude. So obviously if you gave me a choice, would, if you can go back and, you know, your wife would have cancer or not have cancer, I'd say, no, please not have cancer, <laughs> obviously. But I feel like we are better off as, a, as, as individuals and as a family because of it. Do, do you feel like um, the experience that you went through in, in 2016 with her and her cancer in any way has helped you deal with the uncertainty of the pandemic and everything that we've been going through over the past year? Yeah, yes and no, like a true lawyer. Um, <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> right. So I, when, when we went through that and then after when the cancer came back and we had to deal with, you know, doing that whole thing again and, you know, every, because, you know, you've lived it, um, you know, having chronic illness, is, it's just not like, you know, okay, you, you don't have cancer anymore and that's it. You never think about right. it. You're emotionally, psychologically. But I would assure my wife and say, you know, we got through that year. We can get through anything. And I genuinely believe that. And so you try to adopt that thinking in, in everyday life and in, in every um, challenging time. And certainly the pandemic presented many challenges. It was hard, though. It wasn't, it wasn't as easy as like, well, it's certainly not as bad as 2016. So no big deal. I mean, it presenting new challenges for, for all of us professionally, personally with the kids. And, but it also, you know, because of her, I'm air quotes as if you can see me pre-existing condition. Yeah. It all, it's always there, right? Always there. And so, so it was challenging because it was challenging, but also because there was concern, especially early on, well, what happens to Barbie if she, if she gets this, if she gets, you know, the virus is how much worse is it going to be for her than for me? So presented a host of challenges that we all had to deal with. And I think, people with that maybe were older or with pre-existing conditions, it was a bit more stressful, certainly in the beginning. And yeah, we try to lean on past experiences, but this presented so many new and challenges that, you know, I, I, I don't want to lie to you and say, yeah, we got through no problem because of what we went through a few years ago. I, that'd be disingenuous. Right. Let's kind of switch gears a little bit here and talk about the legal industry. Um, you know, it faces unique challenges. You and I have have talked about this before when it comes to 
workforce well-being. So can you talk to me a little bit more about that, your own experiences and, and what that looks like? Absolutely. And so that was the other thing, you know, the, the irony. Um, w- one of the, the ways I try to approach the pandemic, and it doesn't, doesn't always work every day, but like with dealing with, you know, physical illness, good could come from bad. It's perspective. And so the pandemic, I think I said this uh, at the, at the, the Deloitte Forum, the pandemic sucks. Um, it just does. But there is good that is coming from it. And one of the positive things that's coming from it is the world, but certainly the legal industry's focus on well-being. Um, you know, right around the time that I was, I was focusing on my own self-care and reading, uh, you know, just about human behavior and, and psychology and, and other things that interest me, um, the ABA report came out about how lawyers at a, mm-hmm. are at an increased risk of suffering from mental health and, and other professions. And it totally struck a chord. And I read that, you know, over and over again. And I said, well, I gotta, I, I have to do something with this. Like this is like the timing was just perfect. And I don't think it was uh, coincidental. Um, and so I said, well, what can I do and, and, and how can I help? And right around the same time that that report came out, um, our, our previous or prior CEO had been on a talking about, he, he called it the healthiest human system, which was maybe like a, a strange way of phrasing it, but he was focused on employee well-being. And he spoke at Davos on a mental health panel with world leaders like Prince William and talked about you know why employee well-being is important to him and what you know he was trying to do in the industry and it really gave me and all of us at hsbc i would say you know uh implicit permission to talk about these things at a time when mm-hmm. um and it still is stigmatized uh, yeah. we're talking about a lot more a part of our our mission right is to eradicate the stigma but everything was sort of coming together at this time and i felt like this is not coincidental. I have such passion for this. I really believe in the power of self-care and how it not only could just make you better, but it also has real life tangible consequences to what you do day to day in your profession, whatever profession it is, but certainly as an attorney. And I just felt like I needed to, to, to follow that. And so I started, you know, I put a CLE together, um, that's available on PLI called Strive to Thrive, Why Healthy Lawyers Are Good for Business. Um, I provided other, you know, seminars and spoken at law firms and judicial retreats. And really, I mean, to, to, it just sounds corny, but I just want to, I want to help because I, I, I went through it in some respect and I noticed changes in my own behavior mm-hmm. and my ability to practice law as a direct consequence of just taking care of myself. And I wanted to share that with people and really like shine a light or, or help shine a light on the industry that like, just because we've been doing it one way for however long, doesn't mean one, it's the right way. And two, it doesn't mean that we can't make it better. And I truly believe that we can do our jobs just as well, if not better, while also taking care of ourselves and each other. It doesn't have to be this, like, if you're not sleeping at the office every night, then you're not doing it right. Um, badge of honor, right? That if you you went nights without any sleep, that like you were some superhero. I, I, I wouldn't want my attorney or accountant or surgeon or 
pilot or anyone (laughs) to to do any work that matters to me being sleep deprived. That just doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Amen. I, you know, and that's the other thing, sleep. I mean, I was so happy when you met, you, you referenced sleep at the the Lori forum. I've been, I've been talking about sleep for a couple of years now and it's like taboo. It's like a, if you want to or value sleep, it's like a sign of weakness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I just never, I just don't get that. Yeah. I, I, we, we could have a whole other discussion <laughs> on, on sleep. It is one of my favorite topics to talk about. It's also one of my favorite things to do. So. <laughs> I'm with you. I am with you. You know, it's so funny that you say that because um, when I started work, getting up very early to, to exercise, I had no problem passing out at like 9.30. And I would yeah. tell people, what time did you, you woke up at 4.30? Oh my God, what's wrong with you? What time do you go to bed? I was like, I don't know, 9, 9.30. It's like, oh, how do you get to bed so early? Well, when you, you wake up, up at 4.30. 430. <laughs> Thinking about the the legal industry and just what, you know, what you've seen, what you've witnessed, you know, what you've been a part of, have you started to see a shift in the culture? I want to say yes, for this reason. They're talking about it. Well, we are talking about it. Yeah. Um, firms have people such as like you, uh, full-time positions are, you know, taking care of their employees, right? Um, chief well-being officers and the like at these firms. And I like to believe that it's not just sort of a, a figurehead and that there's real substance to those types of jobs at these firms. Um they're certainly willing to hear more about it than they have been in the past. I know a lot of firms have committees now focused on employee well-being. Um, companies, for sure, certainly certainly mine. I mean, we, you can't have a conversation now without talking about well-being. And, and while, like I alluded to earlier, pros and cons to everything, including where I work, one of the pros for sure has been the, the, the consistent focus on mental health and well-being, certainly since the pandemic. And it's it's part of what we're trying to do at the bank in terms of culture. And I see that. I feel that. Um, there are so many resources available to us. And maybe they've always been available. I, I, maybe we just weren't paying attention to it, but 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 they're certainly available now. And I I, I think that there is a there's more sensitivity for sure to the topic. And I don't think you'll be sort of shrugged off mm-hmm. the way you were maybe in the past. Now, if you go ask a third year associate at a big firm, I, I don't know what they're going to say. They might sort of smirk and say, yeah, you know, we talk about it a lot, but I'm still working seven days a week, 16 hour <laughs> days. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure there's some of that. Yeah. And the last thing I'd say for, to, to address your question a lot of the feedback that I received, because I would speak to law firms that we're partners with and ask their opinions. And, you know, and, and a lot of the, the responses were client demand. You know, we have, a, you know, high client demands or, you know, it's not just us doing it. Some of it's the court's fault. You know, we, I'm a litigator. So some of it, the judges impose these crazy deadlines. But a lot of times we have, you know, client demands, client demands. I said, all right. Um, so I can't, I'm not responsible for all clients. Um, but I took that to heart. And said, all right, what am I doing wrong? Can I do something better? Can I do something different? Am I putting on reasonable expectations or deadlines? Am I creating more work for my external counsel that's necessary? And so, you know, at HSBC, at least in the U.S. and our our legal, uh, excuse me, our litigation and regulatory enforcement team, um, we've, the notion of being a good client 
is very important to us. Mm. And we want to help our external counsel do the best job that they can. I think I referenced this at some point, you know, help me help you. And at the end of the day, the lawyers internally and externally are servicing the organization or in some cases, individuals that work at the organization. And so we're not really the client, right? Internal counsel is not really the client. We, we have clients internally also. And so our right. job, the partner internally, externally, and provide the best possible service we can to the organization. And how can I help my external counsel do that? And how can, you know, they help me do that. And so that's the approach that, that we try to take. And I certainly made some changes to, to my own practice and, and habits. And I think, you know, I think external counsel acknowledges it and appreciates it. Have you ever had a conversation with them about it? Or am I outing you on this podcast? <laughs> you know, that's a very good question. Um, I presented at certain firms. Yeah. Um, if I had a you know, sort of a one-on-one, um, I've, I've shared with firms that, that, you know, we, it's important for HSBC to, to be a good client and that I, I try to, uh, create reasonable deadlines and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe not yes. So you know what, that's a very, that's a very <laughs> good question. I, I, maybe not as, so we, and, and, uh, I think you have a to do after yeah, this podcast. I think you're right. <laughs> okay. I want to report right. back. I want to report back. <laughs> okay. So, I'll send you a memo. Okay. So, I mean, in, in your view, what, what are some of the kind of key strategies or behaviors that, that you put forward to show to your people that you, you know, it goes beyond just the talk of supporting their mental and emotional well-being. So I, I two approaches. One is macro, one is micro. So at a macro level, for me, empathy, self-awareness are pillars. It's the foundation. And I think if you start there, it, it goes a long way. So empathy, understanding what other people are going through is very important as a leader, as a colleague, as a friend, um, and has really made all the difference for me personally. And when you come from a place of empathy, when you practice it enough so that your default is how is this person going to feel if I send that email or um, when you get an email and your reaction immediately is like, what the F was that? Pause, don't respond. What's going on on the other side? Is it personal? Probably not. And really trying to just put yourself in their shoes, I think makes all the difference because I got into this like sort of routine of just answering emails real time and checking the list off without really thinking a lot about the response or really big picture or sometimes it was, it was more emotional than it needed to be. And so getting into this practice of, again, okay, what are, what are they asking for me? Why? How does this impact the bigger picture? This is one case I'm working on, but there are 10 others just like it. What does this mean for the 10 other cases? What does this mean for the U.S. and Europe, for instance, where I am? And it really helps. And so it's not just, you know, a, a check the list off of, of things I need to do and respond to emails. I still have my list. But I'm much more thoughtful and deliberate about how I respond and how I, you know, sort of try, um, triage the work. 
do you share that openly with those that work for you in particular to kind of encourage the same behavior out of them? Yes. Awesome. So part of what I, part of what I do is one, I, I become more vocal about how yeah. I, my beliefs um, internally and externally and, and, and what, why I, I, I thoroughly enjoy and appreciate being on podcasts like this. Um, Cause I can share that with people and, and I'm yeah. not just doing something that I think helps me um, in part, I'm doing it to help others, but also I'm putting myself out there. Right. So I better <laughs> role model the behavior and I better practice what I preach or else now, now sort of I'm out there and, and it wouldn't be, you know, good for me. Authentic. They'd hold you accountable. They <laughs> I hope they would, but I certainly with people that report to me and colleagues, I preach empathy and self-awareness. And it's really like, if you see my, my signature um, at the very bottom, my, yeah. my, my quote, right, just that you do the right thing, nothing else matters. I truly believe that. And I practice that. It really has impacted me as a professional and it's kind of like you know people you know get nervous uh when they're talking to you know certain seniority of people and i used to and i don't anymore because i treat everybody the same yeah and if you treat everybody good and well and respectful and kind and empathetic doesn't matter if you're talking to the ceo or somebody else um they get the same yeah and so that's in you know real life I think is also very valuable because then you, you, you present confidently, but also authentically. And I'm not, you know, treating, you know, my manager any different than I'm person that reports to me. And, yeah. you know, I, one of the you know things that, that I've learned uh, after being in private practice, it wasn't always like that. And I was, you know, promised myself that I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fall down that trap. And so, you know, another sort of concrete example, which I think is lacking in this, day and age is active listening mm. and it really irks me when I'm talking to somebody um, especially at work and they're trying to do 17 things at once <laughs> and they keep they, well don't worry talk to me I'm just typing this it was like well and so I don't do that and so if my so I'm typing and my assistant comes in I stop what I'm doing I turn around and I face her and I have a discussion and I listen yeah. to what she has to tell it's me. So, it's so important. I mean, we probably all have been in that situation, right? Where the, the, the person that we're trying to talk to is on their device or on their computer or on both, right? <laughs> and how and how invalidated you feel, right? Or uh, unimportant you feel. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then also, you know, for folks that are, are into research and the science, which, which I am, you know, multitasking isn't productive. It doesn't you know, work. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. It absolutely doesn't work. And it's, you know... I remember how many times you need to learn how to multitask. I was like, well, yes, but it's not productive. So why do I, and that was the other thing, another sort of helpful point about one of the things I learned during the pandemic is I felt like I was doing so many things that were not essential in terms yeah. of my job and joining meetings that I need to be on where I didn't participate, but I was afraid to decline mm -hmm. because sending somebody. And then during the pandemic, when you were sort of forced to be more intentional with your time, because now I had to go to the, store to get something or I had a, you know, we had all had other things on in front of mind, homeschooling, et cetera. You had to be more intentional with the things that you decided to do for work. And I just carried that forward. And I can't tell you that, that the headspace it's created. And I don't feel like I'm, I'm wasting time doing things um, that I don't have to be doing, which means I'm not multitasking. So when I am doing something on a call or zoom or whatever it is, I'm focused on that one task. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I remember <laughs> that, it, you know, and it probably still, I, I haven't looked at job descriptions in a long time, but even on our resumes, you know, we used to put on our resumes that we were excellent multitaskers, right? Or, you know, jo- uh, job descriptions would include that you need to be great at multitasking, right? And I always just kind of giggle at that now, right? It was something we, again, talking about uh, along the lines of badge of busy, right? We used to walk around with the, you know, the badge of being a great multitasker, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that's the other thing. I mean, I I can't like I I'm I have this theory. It's not well formulated yet, but that because we're like legal professionals, right? So we spent three years getting this degree, and we're fiduciaries. And we have ethical responsibilities. We're very important. We're very smart. We're very busy. And that if you're not, it's a quality of a quantity mm. analysis, and it's in my view wrong. Yeah, and. I think we, we, as a profession, we're stuck on on the quantity and not the quality. So if I, my calendar is not full of calls, I'm doing something wrong. If I'm not at my desk 15 hours a day, I'm doing something wrong. And I just don't believe in that. And I, you know. I don't think it's just the legal industry. <laughs> uh, I think that, that there's, yeah, many, many professions. You know, one of my friends said it so so perfectly once. He said, you know, it's not about, it used to be finding the information, right? But that's. Right. We have now so much you, access, yeah. Right, now it's, who's good at filtering the information? What advice do you have, you know, you, you talked about kind of the third year associate. So what advice do you have for, for new lawyers? How can they advocate for themselves and, and their own well-being? I'd say don't, you know, don't be afraid. Don't be somebody that you're not. I was so focused on on the game and, and playing the game right and not offending anybody and, you know, you don't want to upset this partner. You don't want to upset that partner and you don't want to be passed up for work and you want to make sure you're getting a bonus. And really I had like no self-awareness 10, 12 years ago when I started my career and really take the time to reflect and figure out what you like about the job, what you don't like about the job and start focusing on what you do like and find opportunities, focus on those things and stand up for yourself. Like, I can't, you know, how many times I, I can't believe the beating I took, not, not physical, obviously, but, and not even necessarily verbal, but just like the beating you take as a young professional in the industry and just feel like if you spoke up, then you, you know, you didn't, I, I was shit on as a junior lawyer. So now it's your turn kind of thing. And like, just accepting that. Cause that's how it was and figure out what you like and don't like focus on the things you do, like find opportunities that match with you know your strengths and stick up for yourself. And, you know, there's, look, and I say that I'm not, you know, I don't want folks to interpret this as Dom, you know, well, we don't need to work hard anymore. This is not in lieu of hard work. This is in addition to hard work. There's a respectful and professional way to do things. And so always be respectful, always be courteous, deferential to a point, but don't sacrifice who you are as an individual just because you think you have to, because, you know, what's going to happen work-wise or professionally if I stand up for myself. Yeah. So one final question, what, and I ask this to all of my guests. So what is, and you've talked a little bit about this, but I, I want to see if you expand on it a little bit. What is your personal definition of well-being? My personal definition of well-being is doing things that make you a better version of yourself every day. Mm. So whatever that is, 
for, for you. And it's also not a one size fits all, you know, not everybody wants to go to the gym and exercise. That's great. That's fine. Um, but, but identify the things that get you going and do those things and, and, and really striving to be better the next day than you were the previous day. Love it. That's a great definition. Well, thank you, Dominic. It was great to have you on the Work Well podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I hope that we can uh, continue to connect. Absolutely. I'm so grateful Dominic could be with us today to talk about his personal story and well-being in the legal profession. Thank you to our producers and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. Be well.